go. All right, welcome, welcome, welcome. We are back for the Positive Deposit Podcast where we transform minds to change lives. I'm your host, Presley Nelson Jr., you know, founder, president of Positive Deposits and the host for tonight. And I have a special, special guest tonight. Usually we have cancer survivors, we've had doctors come on the show, but we, you know, thought about it and said, you know, caregivers, they matter too. And so I have the pleasure of having Teron Johnson. Yeah, he's a bison. You see it, you know, (laughs) you know, um, on the show today. So Teron, just give a brief intro, you know, and then we're going to jump right into this conversation. Awesome sauce. Uh, Thank you for having me, brother. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Um, to even be invited, <laughs> having seen your videos, having been, uh, you know, watching your positive deposits. Um, I'm originally from El Paso, Texas, uh, right on the border of good old Mexico. I'm an army brat. I've lived all over the world. And I had okay. the pleasure of becoming friends with you and others uh, <laughs> uh, when I was uh, at Howard many, many moons ago. We all came into Howard together as freshmen. Yes, sir. Hungry together in Drew Hall, no visitation, yeah. no phone numbers, no Wi Fi, <laughs> no dining dollars. And, oh, no, right? Uh, man, listen, I don't even know what they're doing now. Um, and as this journey of life has gone on, I too have a, a kindred spirit now with yourself as a survivor, uh, being that my father's in the process of beating and surviving uh, AML leukemia. Mm. And I was there uh, as a caregiver for uh, my late aunt who just came to her battle with cancer uh, this past November of 2019. And uh, another aunt of mine who, who sort of came to her um, neopharyngeal carcinoma, I never can say it. Um, she, she gave in to her cancer, unfortunately, this past December. But in wow. the case of all three, I've been blessed to be in a position to provide and act as a healthcare you know, assistant and provider and, and yeah. be there for their unique journeys, man. And, you know, it's been a blessing even out of the losses. I've learned a lot. I hope that. So let's, let's talk about that, man. And, and one, I commend you, you know, because uh, it takes a, a strength to be a caregiver. And you did something, you know, that most people wouldn't do, you know, 15 years in the industry, hotel management industry. And, you know, you left to, to help your father. Talk to us about that moment when you've had found out. Well, you know, if I could, I'll start with my father's backstory. He probably tells the story. Okay. Yeah. I find it hilarious. So my mother and my father are like the real life Huxtables. They're like, they fall in love more each day. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you, you know, their relationship goals and yeah, my, yeah. my father being an army veteran used to pride himself going through a canyon we have in El Paso that's called McKelligan Canyon. It's approximately like five miles and it's elevated, um, elevated because you go up and down through the hills of the mountain. My father used right. to take soldiers through there um, in his military career. Well, my mother goes for a walk with my aunt and a couple of their girlfriends, because on the weekends, you'll see a lot of people that just walk their dogs and things and they go through right, and right. kind of get to talk and work out and you get to be one with nature. So my mother and my father go together. Okay. And, um, Sounds like the perfect love story. Oh, listen, man, it's sickening, man. Make you throw up. So my father and my mother are going, and my father is fluffy. You know, he still eats like he's, you know, a size 34 waist, you know. And so, you know, my mother, though, she could, you know, she still got it, you know. So they're walking, and my father gets about 30 paces, and he's totally out of breath. And he's, he's, uh, his pride, which, you know, as we know, pride, it's a bad thing. Pride takes him down. He, he gets mad at my mom, and he gets mad at my aunt. He's like, y'all are doing something wrong. And they're not even worried about him. They're like, man, we're going to go on this walk without you. You just came last second. So my father labors for like another 60 steps. He's so winded that he takes a seat on a bench, but he, in his mind, he's like, you know what? I'm going to show them. So they finish their walk and my father right. goes home, sets up a doctor's appointment that Monday. So oh, he goes in tells the doctor, I already know what the problem is. I'm fat. You know, uh, <laughs> my wife and my, my sister-in-law don't embarrass me. So I just need right. to just run some tests. Put me on a fat man program. Get this eight get pack back. Let's yeah. Let me just get back to my sexy self. So I guess, and again, this he's doing this secretly. None of us know this. I don't even know about this walk. I'm in DC at the time. Yeah. And so he he gets a call. Hey, we have your test results. You need to come in. My father says, "No, nah, you can give them to me over the phone." I said, "No, nah, you're gonna need to come in." So my father goes to his main doctor, who is not there, and the admin goes, "Oh, you need to go to floor 10. Yeah. which my father doesn't know is the oncology floor. 
Oh. So he rides up and he's, and this is at the military hospital, my father okay. being a Walter veteran. Walter Reed type, like that type of? Yeah, similar, uh, William Beaumont here in El Paso. It's okay. Like the, the military hospital here. So he goes in and he comes off the elevator, gives him his little referral and they give him, they say, welcome to the family. And they hand my father a, you have cancer brochure. And my father what? says in a quote, oh, I'm not a member of your family. I'm here for the fat people. Gives the brochure back <laughs> to the admin, gets back on the elevator, rides down to the, wow. to the doctor and goes, hey, there's a problem. And they said, sorry, we were hoping that the doctor would be there when you got off the elevator, you just beat him there. So they go back up. Uh, Dr. Alexander, good man, good brother. Yeah. He um, tells my father, first time meet him, he says, you know, we, we, you, we looked at your blood test. We saw some things that concern us. We need to run some initial tests and we need to do them now. So they run those tests. They hold my father and he goes, okay, listen, you have the most rare and advanced form of AML leukemia. Wow. Known to me. He said, I don't know how you got it. I don't know why you have it, but I do know that it's too advanced for us to treat here in El Paso. So I'm going to send you to a place called MD Anderson um, in Houston, Texas, Cancer Hospital, because okay. it's so advanced, we would be wasting right. our time right. fighting this. So my father's looking and he's like, cancer, but I don't feel sick. And, you know, I don't have a problem. He said, listen, I know, but I'm looking at your blood panel. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's got bad. It. Yeah. yeah. So he says, so fortunately, my father being a retired army vet, TRICARE, which uh, they did a lot of good things, which is the health care, I guess, for the veterans. He had already got my father a travel liaison. He had already oh, got my nice. father booked to leave. So he tells my father, okay, so your flight leaves tomorrow morning. You'll be in Houston tomorrow morning. My father says, wait a minute. I've got a wife. I've got grandkids. I got kids. I, you know, I can't just leave. He says, I'll give you two days and then you need to be in Houston because if not, you'll be dead in like six months. Wow. So, you don't, you know, and, and my father said like he even tried to bring levity to the situation. He tried to joke. And Dr. Alexander just was stoic, nah. like, yeah, man, yeah, tricks are for kids, you know? So <laughs> I guess my father goes home, tells my mother, and I'm at the time with my, my girlfriend at the time, we're just driving, we're coming from like Tyson's Corner or something. Yeah, yeah. And my father calls me and he's like, and I could tell it was something, but he was just like, you know, I don't know how to tell you this. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, I've got cancer. And I said, you got cancer? And he goes, yeah, but you know, they're gonna send me to this place in Houston, I'm leaving in a day. Um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but you know, that's where we're at. So I said, okay, I'll tell you what I said, uh, I'll put my stuff in storage because my mother's a school teacher. I said, you know, and right. my parents don't know what to, only thing we know about cancer is what we've seen in lifetime exactly, and, and what we've seen from our loved ones who succumb to the battle of cancer, you know? Wow. So, you know, we're understandably, we're confused and we're scared. So I said, okay, I'm going to put my stuff in storage and I'll fly out. I'll be in Houston and you know, the next day. So I think my parents got there, say that Sunday, I got there that Monday. Wow. So go to MD Anderson. I go with my father to check my, 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 my father in, my mother and I go, um, they put him in a room. And the first thing they tell us is you got to leave. We're giving your dad a CBC pick line. And from that moment, it's, it's sunk in in my brain, like, wow, my dad is really in this fight. And yeah. Because the call came so quick and the turnaround to be in Houston happened within, you know, 36 hours, I don't think I ever really got a chance to process what was going on. Right. I just felt I'm the oldest but least mature in my family, but I felt like I had a responsibility to, you know, try to be the man of the house situation, try to be the person who's going to be like, okay, I'll handle all of the procedural things that are going to come with this. So right, that right. my father can focus on trying to beat this cancer and my family can focus on just loving on him and praying and, you know, getting through it. And it was it was a journey, brother. We got there. Um, Dr. Pomeraju was my, my father's first doctor and yeah. Nurse Gurley was his first nurse. Um, nurse Gurley had had breast cancer. She had lost both of her breasts while beating breast cancer. Um, it was awesome talking with her because she could identify with what my father was going through. Yeah. And I had never, I had never heard of MD Anderson. I didn't know that this is a hospital that's 10 city blocks. It's got its own zip code. It's in a place wow. in Houston called Medical Center. And all they do is cancer treatments. All they do is cancer research, you know? Um, and I remember Dr. Pomeraju said, okay, what we're going to do is um, we need to run a test to see how old your cancer is. They found out my father's cancer was only six weeks old. Yeah. Then they said, okay, we need to find out like, what are your treatment options? So they found out immediately. They said, okay, it's so advanced. You'll be dead in that six months. We think you'll be dead. 
chemotherapy is not going to work. We're going to do chemotherapy, but we're going to do that while we find you a stem cell donor. So, and feel free to interrupt anytime. No, I, so um, it's, it's interesting that you just adjusted, right? You just adjusted. It was like, hey, I have a responsibility. Um, in that space though, right? Like, was it hard for you to leave your job? I mean, cause I know that you were like in there, in there when it came to the hotel industry and to just automatically snap and pick up and leave. Like, was there any hesitation outside of like, hey, it's responsibility or, you know, cause that's, this is, this is a different beast. Well, you know, you know, the thing I find that's awesome, brother. First of all, the answer is absolutely not. Only got one daddy and I'm blessed that I have a father who raised me, you know what I'm saying? On both yeah. sides of my family, my cousins, a lot of them, you know, their fathers frankly weren't there. So I right. knew already, like, I, I had a golden ticket. And then number two, probably in July of 2014, I remember June or July of 2014, I remember knowing that like, I shouldn't be in hotels anymore. Mm. Oh, and I knew that and I was dragging my feet and it was one of those situations where my relationship with my company at the time, it wasn't gonna, it probably was, ultimately going to go a bad way anyway. Right. And actually when my father found out he had cancer, I was right at the verge of, we were going to, for lack of a better term, we were going to break up anyway. So <laughs> for me, it made it where it was kind of like a no brainer. I think that for me, again, like I remember my father went overseas when I was like in first grade and he pulled me to the side and I'm a kid, man, I'm little, but I think he's yeah. doing cultivate you know you're a father you know yeah. what I mean so you know you're imparting wisdom and, it, and it's when I remember him telling me hey man you're the you're the man of the house and um you're gonna need to watch over your mother and your sister until I get back and even as a little kid you take that seriously because yeah. like me and you're like man my dad's me awesome man this so is he already pre-prepped you and this is a yeah. moment where you're like hey I gotta step up yeah. And then, you know, I, being an army brat, I lived overseas. My brother and sister are actually born overseas. I'm the only one that was born in the U.S., but I've yeah. been in the U.S. for a war and I've been overseas for a war. So I remember waking up in Germany and going to school and there's a lockdown in our military community and the military yeah. are escorting us to school and you get to school and kids are crying because their mother and their father are in the military and left yeah. at two o'clock in the morning and didn't tell them nothing. Jesus. It's just the neighbor comes across the hall and is in charge of watching them now, yeah. you know, and so and gotcha. you don't know where mom and dad are, you don't know where they're going. So when I would see these kids and compare it to my situation, it whether I knew it or not, it was preparing me. But yeah. I also just kind of went into that mentality. I was like, you know, I don't I, I'm thinking lifetime movies, bro. I'm yeah. like, you know, I'm like, oh, he's going to die. Right, right, right. You know, Fried green to me. I'm thinking every movie that ever made you cry, I'm thinking that's going to happen. And I'm saying yeah. my mother and my father are peas in a pod. So I, I didn't want my mother to have to carry that. And I didn't want my sister or my brother. My brother was finishing undergrad. I, I don't think he was in law school yet. Um, finishing up. And I just wanted to be able to carry the brunt of it. I didn't know right. what I was getting into, but it proved to, to be advantageous, brother. So what were some of the like responsibilities that you took on? You know, which oh, man, first thing you do, like, walk just, us through that because I, I think people don't understand like being a caregiver is work, you know. Oh, yeah, man. Work. So, what are some of the things you that you had to do for your pops? First thing I had to do, my parents were staying in a hotel, so obviously, I know a lot about hotels, and of I was course. like, man. So, they were like, so they told my father, they said, We got there the first day, they put a CVC pick line into his arm, and for those, you, like, you, what is it? What is that? I know you yes. said it many so, times. So some people get, sometimes you'll hear like, and I've heard it on your podcast, like yeah. people get data ports. Yep. And, and I'm sure you can relate to this. Yeah. When you have cancer, at least let me speak for AML leukemia. When you have AML leukemia, you're getting blood tests daily. So instead oh, of wow. them your veins and then pricking you, what they did is they did a surgical, a same, same day, it only took them like 30 minutes. They basically yeah. put a line into my father's vein in his arm. Oh, had three lines that sat like my finger is. Yeah. Basically, they could use one, for example, for chemo. Then you could oh, use wow. the other one for raw blood. And then you could use the other one to put in like a sedative. And you don't have to prick or poke anybody anymore. See, that's convenient. I got to support. They got to do one. Well, they, they change like the valves and the plugs. But to have like a little uh, <laughs> USB, yeah. you know, port. That's what it looks like. That's dope. It, and, and, and that was the, see, that was the advantage. My father was treated at MD Anderson 
My, my aunt was treated at Georgetown Cancer Hospital. Both are fantastic facilities. Yeah. But I will say that MD Anderson, some people say it's the best hospital in the country, in the world for cancer. Some say top right. two. But I will say that they have a, 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 a visible difference to how they're approaching cancer. And I okay. think it's because unlike Georgetown, they have the convenience of we only do cancer. You know, we're not, we're not, uh, yeah, we have an ER and if something happens, you can come in, but everybody here is fighting some form of cancer. Right. So that was the first day. And then the second day, my father went to what they call the big house. So they took him up to the leukemia floor and they told him, all right, you better pick a room because whatever room you pick, you're going to be in there for 30 days. You're never going to come out. 30 days? 30 days, brother. That's why they call it the big house. So my father picked the big house. Yeah, the big house. You're locked up. We got to my mother and my mother and I were there and they began from the pick line. They began to give my father his first chemo. And okay. you may be familiar, you know, when you're neutropene or you ultimately become neutropene. Yeah. And for those that may not know, that's where your white blood cell count is zero. Yep. It's, it goes down. Like full blown, you know, HIV or AIDS, no immune defenses. Yeah. And, you know, Dr. Pomeraju, my, my father's first doctor, I really appreciated what he said because we got there around, uh, you know, Final Four was coming up. March Madness was on the way. Right, right. And uh, I remember he said, hey, I love basketball. He said, so, Mr. Johnson, we're going to run a full court press on your on your body and wow. we're going to kill as much of you and all of the cancer. But we're going to kill all the cancer and as much of you as possible without killing you. But it's going to it's going to be a journey. <laughs> So, you know, we're sitting there and, and they said, I know that your, your father's only been here 10 hours. I know your husband's only been here 10, 12 hours, but his cell count is dropping so quick that within the next two hours, you all are going to have to talk to him through glass. So my father was in this room and there wow. was a window. We could talk on the phone. There was a speaker you could hear throughout the room. Yeah. And uh, it was rough for him, man. No showers. Yeah. Had to use the bathroom in no a bucket. showers. For 30 days. Wow. The bathroom in a bucket. Uh, The only thing he could do was gargle with the special wash to avoid thrush. Yeah. And they just put my dad through like a grueling um, treatment. They would go in with these full hazmat suits. Yeah. So like that was like literally from the second day on. So like I remember, you know, again, we're thinking what you see on TV. I'm like, my dad's going to, you know, be uh, emaciated in 12 hours. But, you know, you wake up the next day and he looks normal. So I'm like, oh, man, cancer ain't nothing, man. I don't know what the whole right. question is. That's what I'm thinking. But they would warn my father. They were like, hey, listen, day seven is when you're going to start to feel something different. And by day 14, you're going to know that you're in a fight. They right, kept right. And the thing that was cool is whatever you wanted in the room, you could have. Like there was an architect that was a room over. They used to bring yeah. his models in and he would work on those in his room. Because right. again, there for that full 30 days right so right he brought my father like an exercise bike and like the first day press he was doing his thing bro he was like oh, I'm, man. Gonna, I'm gonna whoop cancer and blah blah yeah, blah yeah so as he's going through that journey the first thing i knew is i said okay i'm gonna be here because houston houston's about 13 hours from el paso it's oh wow two time zones over Dang, so it's crazy yeah, so what I did is I told my mother, I said, hey, I just want you to focus. You just go home and you finish the school year and then you can come in summer. That's the advantage of having a teacher, you know, yeah. and, and I'll just hold everything <laughs> down until you get there. Yeah. So, man, I was walking and because I'm looking at the hotel room and the hotel, they were kind enough to give us a government rate. And because my father's retired veteran, the government was willing to, hey, if you can stay at this rate, will you have to basically send in paperwork, but we'll, we'll honor uh, we'll take care of your room and board. Yeah. I'm looking and I'm like, man, you can't be in a hotel room, you know, fighting cancer. I just know how a room is going to be after two weeks, three weeks. I'm walking down um, Westheimer Street and I see this place and uh, right by NRG Stadium and it's called Reside. And no lies, like the Lord just told me to go in. So I go in and I ask the guy, I'm like, hey, are these apartment complex? He goes, yes, I own the complex, but the catch is I only allow people who are getting medical treatment to stay here. I don't care what kind of medical treatment you're getting, but you have to stay here. I said, what? He said, yeah, we don't sign a lease. You know, you don't have to give me 30 days to move out. So I'm like, do you have any openings? He's like, sure. So he shows me a two bedroom apartment full Wi-Fi, fully furnished, balcony, two bathrooms, laundry room, everything in this apartment. Wow. <laughs> a gym look there. Yeah, look at, hey, listen, man, look at God. And so 
you know, he was like, hey, you know, you don't, we don't do security deposits, just bring your dad's diagnosis and I'll take care of that. So the government at first was only taking care of my father when he got out. But for me, fortunately, I had enough, I had enough money where, you know, we're up here, we're just going to wait until, you know, my father comes home. So probably like within a week and a half, I was in an apartment and I would just then at that point, make it a regiment to see my father. So, okay. You know, my dad has cancer and I'm realizing, okay, we're about to go on this journey. Probably by like that seventh to 10th day, just like clockwork. My, I remember going to see my father and he was so tired. He couldn't roll over to look at me when we were talking. Mm. He, had to put his phone, he had to put the phone on speaker where it could hear through the room and it would be very short. Yeah, no, you know, it would be answers like that. Wow. And, and the nurses were telling me, they were like, you know, Mr. Johnson, you just have to understand this is the process and your dad's just going through what everybody else is going through. So, you Was know. Was there any moment that you broke down? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, like I had a nice little cheat code. I didn't realize it. When my father got diagnosed, I weighed 165 pounds. So there was a gym not too far from the apartment. So like, brother, I was working out like three times a day. I would go see wow. my father three times a day for about like two to two hours, two to three hours a time. And I would see him every day. But this is the catch, brother. I would run to the gym, which was like a mile and a half. I would do like rowing. I would get my butt kicked in spin class by like all the women in there. They kick my yeah. butt and then like I would lift. I went. So that was more like an outlet for you. Yeah, but I don't even I realize it at the time because press, I was so focused. I went from 165 to 218 in about four months. What? Oh, brother, I'm 190 now. You know what I'm saying? Like, I always had the fat head, but you know, I don't miss a meal now. But it yeah. was just because I, I'm like you're saying, I'm not realizing I'm in trauma. I realized that it was real to me. Um, my father would get a blood test every day. So like yeah. now I can read a blood report. And you know, with leukemia, you're looking for your blast. Well, let me be specific. With AML, you're looking at your blast count. Yes. And for those that don't know, that's the amount of white blood cells that are getting blasted out of your bone marrow. And, you know, as you know, with AML leukemia, these folks, their number is at a dangerous level. So like, you right. know, I would read my father's blood count and I would look at all this. But as long as this count was down, we knew that the chemo was working and we were doing chemo. My father ended up doing over a dozen rounds of chemo because yeah. we were trying to find a match. Well, the government had to approve him for FDA experiment to okay. get the cell. And then after that process, which was took some time, then it was about finding a match. So one time my father, we're, we're prepped, we're, we're thinking we're going to be able to move into stem cell. And my father's white blast count called, does what's called a relapse. So I remember I'm in, the, I'm, in, I'm in the apartment. My mother's come down for like spring break. She's staying with my dad, like, you know, because this is after the first month. So they're in, he can be around people. You just have to have your mask on pre-COVID. Right, right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, my mother and my, my father there, and they've got Dr. Pomeraju, the main doctor, and Dr. Sharia, my father's stem cell doctor, and they're on speakerphone. I'm at the apartment by myself, and I say, hey, listen, we had a relapse. Could be that your dad has an infection. It could be that yeah. the cancer's fighting back, but we're going to figure it out. And, like, press. I kept it cool on the phone. Thank God it wasn't like this where they could see me. But when I hung up that phone, man, I didn't cry. I wept. Wow. And it wasn't even that I thought my father was going to die. It was just that the reality, I had been so zeroed in on, Pop, what do you do? Oh, okay, I pay these bills on this day. Yeah. So, you know, get in the mail to make sure that, you know, my mother and my father had this breakdown of how they do everything. And I was trying to take my father's responsibilities so that yeah. my mother could try to maintain as much as possible. I would see the stress on my mother. So, like, I remember the weeping, man, like, press. I'm like, there's nothing I can do to help my dad. And it, it, but it's a good thing because it, although I'm a heathen, I know that God is real. I'm speaking for myself. I know that God is real. And you're going to get, you're going to, all this stuff you may say, you know, in the church sermons or you sang in the pews, yeah. all of that is going to get tested. You know what I mean? In this process. And so ultimately it was good because the only choice I had was to go and pray. Yeah. The only choice I had was to tell God, Hey man, last I checked, I, I didn't hang the earth on nothing. I, I can't stop what's happening. So let me stop thinking that whatever I'm doing is delaying this and let me just run back into your name and have right. confidence in what you're going to ultimately. So do you feel like your faith has grown stronger be since this? Since oh, this? yeah. Yeah. Not just my, man, my faith in my, 
I always understood that, you know, you only get one time, nobody gets out alive. You know, yeah. we're all gonna pass from something. Hopefully we all die fat and happy. But what it Hopefully. did, what, yeah, what this process has shown me is you better get to living. You better mm. get to living because it's coming with however it comes. And, you know, I've heard this before, you know, they say you're born in one day, you die in one day. So yeah. it, it was, and I love that because what it was showing me is prior to this, I would obsess over things like this. You know, when you're a kid and you're learning yeah. about that, man, listen, that's going to come and that's going to take care of itself. What are you going to do in this space of time that you're given? You know what I'm saying? What are you, yeah. whatever it is. And having to face my father's mortality forced me to have to confront my own mortality. Ooh. It forced me to have to admit that, hey man, at the end of the day, this whole God complex that we all are guilty of, we all think we wake up and we can walk to the bathroom. But as you know, as a two-time survivor, Yes, sir. Take getting up for granted or wiping yourself for granted or eating yeah. food and keeping it down for granted. And this thing will humble you. And it will. Oh, it, it, <laughs> it definitely will humble you. I mean, going through it twice in two extremities, right? Mm -hmm. Large B cell, an aggressive tumor that grows 60 to 70 percent to stage four cancer where my liver has lymph nodes and I'm, I'm not able to get the nutrients my weight goes down to almost like 145 from, you know, 180. And so it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. Oh, Y'all um, the toughest people on earth. I don't, <laughs> you know what I loved about MD Anderson and it being a cancer hospital? It showed me that cancer is not as petty as humans. Cancer don't care what God you pray to. Cancer don't care what, what your melanin count is. Cancer don't care what your bank account say. It'll come and it'll hunt you. It don't care if you're young or old. Nope. And I got to see they have these rooms of worship on the facility where you okay. independently throughout where you can go. And it was beautiful. I'd see Muslim brothers praying with Jewish brothers, praying with Christian brothers, praying with atheists or spiritual people, because at the end of the day, this cancer is a unifier. You know, I saw not MAGA individuals, but I saw, you know, maybe staunch Republicans and left liberals wow. all in the same chemo hall. And hey, man, we don't have no time for politics. We're all trying to kick cancer's butt right now. And right live and you know i tell you i would go my father would do these chemo sessions press they'd be like all day and when i say they're all day i'm talking like an 18 hour chemo session 18 hours yeah sometimes like he would have the option to either stay in the in the hospital and finish it which he always would choose my dad was the type he's like i love you son but if something goes wrong i need to be close to the er i'm like yeah bro you need to be close to the er i'll come pick you up and so um he would like go in but they would give him the option like hey you can go home with your iv and then you come back in the morning, but he would just stay. So, you know, you go in here in the morning, press, man, this little kid walks up to me and I'm just waiting on my daddy's going back in the room and this kid is talking and say, hey, what kind of cancer do you have? Press, yeah, this yeah, he's got to be like five or six. I said, oh no, I don't have cancer. My, my dad has cancer. He said, oh, okay. Well, I have, press, he's telling me about this kind of cancer he has and he's getting ready to go into chemo. And I'm in here crying like I got cancer. Like I'm going to go into chemo. I he's said, strong. Hmm. Listen, man, and you already know this, your mentality is key. Mental is key. So Always. I'm like having to give myself the speech. I'm like, you need to straighten it up. Because if you yeah. can't break this little kid down, who clearly is tougher than you, but I'm just looking at this, the vibrance in this kid and like yeah. the excitement to defeat this foe he has. And I just, there were daily humble reminders. Every day, man, I would see stuff like that that would just humble me and let I me mean, know. The kids, they're, they're tough, man. I, I sat in a room with a, uh, an 18 year old, you know, stage four, um, hair never went out, but like she was just so focused and full of energy. See, and and I was just like, she's doing this like a pro. Like she's just yeah. sitting in the chair, like <laughs> got her little headphones on. And I'm just like, well, it's right. you start feeling ashamed of yourself. <laughs> yeah, I said, I said, I had to, I had to check myself. Like, okay, all right, cool. You know, um, so I know that you were a former caregiver to your aunt. Do you feel as though that that process had prepared you for this with your father, or it hit different because it was your direct? Oh man, you know the beauty is my father was diagnosed in 2015. So, okay. so jumping a little bit. So my my baby aunt on my father's side. She had the nasal pharyngeal uh, cancer. She was diagnosed terminal in 1996. They told her she okay. wouldn't live past 2000 and she passed December of 2019. So just, you know, just to show you that, like, you know, doctors may know, but 
God determines when we're done with our time. Exactly. Yeah. Amen. So when, when I, so in 96, you know, I'm a teenager. I hear my aunt has cancer. But when we got to Howard, I want to say my sophomore year, my aunt, yeah. my middle aunt got diagnosed with colon cancer. I want to say oh, in wow. too. So she used to live out in Bowie and I would live there and help. But like pretty much they had surgery. They took a piece of her intestine and she just had a bad doctor who never told her that, hey, you need, you're going to have to be in the danger zone. Bad doctors, man. And have to get a checkup. He never told her. So, you know, my father gets diagnosed in 2015. In fact, my father found out he had cancer the day after his birthday. That's how I always remember because my father just had a birthday. The 26th was two days ago. So yes. yeah, so as a matter of fact, uh, uh, to the year yesterday, my father found out he had cancer, January wow. 20th. Yeah, so, you know, I go through that process with him and we're talking about, you know, I've, I ended up giving my father my stem cell because there weren't any matches. I was, I was wondering who, who, who uh, fulfilled that. How, I, was, how was that process? You know, man, you ever, you ever jump it? Well, you, you know, and I, I know you can relate to this because you're a husband and a father. I, I'm, I'm not fortunate enough to have kids, but I've been told by all great fathers like yourself that the first time you hold your baby, yeah. you like let it be known to your baby, like nothing is going to happen to you. I'm going to make, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to yeah. protect you. You know, you're my responsibility. Well, the thing is, is that that's kind of what ended up happening. Like you almost switch roles. My father yeah. almost became like my son and I became as his father. Wow. Because, because most African-Americans and most Latinos for that matter, we don't participate in the donor bank, it's we very don't. unlikely that you're going to get your match. And although your match can be anybody on earth, from what the doctors had explained to me, and I apologize if I've got it wrong, I'm a layman, but pretty much you have a better chance of it not being based on sex for a match, but uh -huh. like if you're African-American, you're more than likely, your match will also be African-American. Right. So, and as you know, for whatever reason, these treatments are so expensive that it was like hundreds of thousands of dollars to run my father's name. So they were like, yeah. okay, we have no match. Then they said, hey, you know what we're gonna do? We'll check and see if your sisters and brothers match. But wow. they weren't, they weren't, you know, they either was my aunt had cancer, so she wasn't eligible, or yeah. you know, it wasn't strong enough match. So we're sitting there and they had already told, I remember we're in the stem cell office and they said, okay, we're gonna do another round of chemo. But the problem is, is if we don't find a stem cell search, even though we'll do a month of chemo within three to six months, your cancer will be back like nothing happened. And eventually we'll do chemo, but eventually you'll give, you'll give out to it. So yeah. I'm sitting there and I'm looking at my father, my father to his credit, man, he looks concerned, but he's looking like, okay, I'll figure it out. And before I know it, man, I'm like, Hey, can I volunteer? And they were oh, like, gosh. yeah, you're what's called a Hablo match. And what a Hablo match is, is you're half your mother, you're half your father. Right. And so again, I'm not a doctor, but from how I understand it, when you have AML leukemia, your 11 and your 17 chromosomes cross. They're yeah. not sure as to why that happens. But what they have found out, and in this study that my father and I are a part of, right. they have found now that they can scrub the DNA yeah. of an AML patient, take the 11 and 17 chromosomes out of your DNA, and implant the 11 and 17 chromosomes from someone healthy like myself. Wow. So it was like a six week process. I had to go through testing. I had to go through all this. In fact, I weighed too much. Like I told you, I weighed 218. Yeah. I have to get down to 200 because I guess my EKG. Is was that low. why you were in the hospital? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I was That's in the hospital. That's why. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. I've been living in hospitals for years at this point. Yeah. So I, uh, I did that. I went through all these tests and then I did like a five hour surgery. They drilled in my back. They went into the lower of my back and my hips. And then they drilled like 50 to 80% on each side. And they took my bone marrow. They took wow. um, NK cells, uh, natural killer cells. And these are a finite amount of cells that are in all of our bodies that hunt down cancer cells. And uh, even before- like my seven school, pounds, man. Oh, listen, brother, it was crazy. <laughs> I had to go because before you do the big surgery, you go to this place called Holly Hall. It's like a blood bank that's yeah. there. And I would sit there for about like four to six hours and they would take yeah. like- all these cells and they were growing uh, NK cells in a lab. So they would clone them. And they were like, yeah, we're gonna basically give your dad your stem cell and we're gonna give your dad your NK cells. So like my father only did one round of radiation and they said that was because the cancer will try to survive and run to these obscure places. And then he began the stem cell. And, and like my father's full recovery will be about seven years. 
which we're, okay. we're on the eve of that because like even the day that we did the surgery, they brought my dad a birthday cake. They're like, congratulations, you're one. Oh, wow. Because um, I'm, uh, my father was in his 50s on the outside, but yeah. on the inside from the procedure, it was like being a newborn baby. Wow. So you know this from having your daughter. You know, when you got a newborn, you got to have a hat on their head. And if it's too hot or too cold outside. Yeah. You got to bundle them up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and brother, it was just like that. My father had to go everywhere with gloves and he has to wear a mask. And for two years straight, he couldn't be around kids or dogs and right. you know, couldn't cut grass. So coming back to El Paso, that was what I was serving as. Like, you yeah. know, just letting my father rest up and try to get back to who he is. And it was it was like watching a kid. Some days my father would look normal. Most days my father would be up and be winded within 20, 30 steps. And yeah. you got to get this guy in the bed, man. And he's not strong enough to go to the bathroom. And, wow. You know, all of that. But that actually happens. And my aunt, unbeknownst to her from having a faulty doctor, her colon cancer had metastasized to her lungs. And Jesus Christ, she, man. Yeah, she went in to get a uh, eye checkup. She wore glasses. And her doctor looked and said he saw little lines in her eyes. And um, he never told her anything with cancer. He said, hey, listen, I need you to go do this test because I see something in your eyes I'm not comfortable with. Well, whatever that test was, they find out. They say, okay, you've got stage four lung cancer. You've got two months to live. You've got two months to live. So my, my aunt, who is my father's the oldest on, in his family. Yeah. My father's going through his treatment. She doesn't want to tell my father, even though we've done stem cell. So she suffers alone oh. until the pain got so bad. And I'll never forget, she calls in February the following year. And she's talking to my dad and she's like, you know, I, don't, I, I can't get the chemo on my own and I'm bad off. So I say, hey, listen, I'm going to be, I'll fly out there tomorrow. So I flew from Texas to DC the next day. I lived there for six months. And wow. just, it was just a totally different process. My, my aunt was like really in a bad way. She was a teacher her whole life had to go to court to fight to get her um, retirement because when she delivered her papers that she was terminal, they let her go that day. So thank you so much, let her go. So then, you know, I had to go to court, had to hire an attorney, had to do that. And then, um, and, and fortunately God is great. They ended up giving my aunt like her back pay from her retirement. Yeah. And then they set her up where she would get paid once a month, direct deposit. Then I had to go back to court and um, meet with social security because she was terminal, but did we pay for it? And that took a couple of weeks, but they were kind enough to do a back pay. And they basically, base, I guess she had paid so much in, she was getting a check from them. So what it was doing was every month she would get a check from her retirement. And then two weeks after that, every month she would get a check wow. from social security. So it allowed her to, I was able to put her in a, an apartment that she could keep and Cause she was, she, she couldn't work anymore, but you know, yeah. the bills are due. Um, oh, no question. Yeah, brother. And then like, you know, I told my aunt and I said to her, you know, when I got up there, she was like, so she didn't want to be an inconvenience. And I said, hey, listen, auntie, auntie D, I'm going to tell you, like I told my dad, I said, we come in together, we leave together. So, yes, you know, whatever happens when we go to this chemo session, it could be six hours, 18 hours, just whatever, man, I'm gonna get a good book and we're going to sit here and we're going to do this together. So we would drive to Georgetown in the morning, you yep. know what I mean? Do the chemo sessions and we'd come back and you know, there were there were a lot of ups and downs, brother. And like when I say up and downs, I mean Monty was in the ER four or five times, you know, calling the ambulance, coming over and finding my because I would go and um, make her breakfast and you know, get her dressed. And then my other aunt, who was also sick with cancer, lived, they lived together. So they kind of yep. were helping each other. Right. And I was living somewhere else in D.C. So I would come in the morning, man. I come there and like I've seen it all, man. My aunt knocked out on the floor, calling the ambulance. Yeah. Telling them I think she's alive, but thinking she's gone. These are things that were happening. But because of watching my father be sick, because yeah. we lived, we were at MD Anderson for over a year. And yeah. then we were in El Paso on this men going into year two. Right. It prepared me for that part. I, um, I remember asking my aunt, I said, uh, what do you want? You know, because, you know, here's this diagnosis, but yeah. you know, they're practicing medicine. That's right. the thing I love, I love to tell people. They're practicing medicine. They, they don't know any more than you or I know. They're just practicing. And wow. we, we pray to and we believe in a master physician. So the doctor could tell me whatever they want to tell me. And I'm not challenging their acumen. I'm just saying that until the head physician says whatever it is, that's what it's going to be. So 
my aunt said, I want to see my daughter, my, my youngest cousin, she was studying abroad in Italy. She said, I want to see my youngest daughter come home from Italy. So my, my cousin was in Italy for like a month later, a month mm -hmm. long, he made it home. So I said, okay, they told you you'd be dead in two months. You already made it three months. You're already alive. I said, uh, what else do you want? She said, well, I want to see my son graduate college. My other cousin was a senior at Maryland. He graduated. So I said, okay, we've seen that. What do you want? She said, well, I want to see my daughter now graduate from Syracuse. My, my same cousin who came from Italy, she graduated the next year from Syracuse. Right. Wow. So these are the things that I was seeing in real time. And like, you know, I end up... Um, my aunt was sick, but we ended up uh, meeting with the attorney and we built what was called an irrevocable trust. Yeah, because the thing that I found as a caregiver was we had law, we had deaths in our family, but we had never had the will conversation. We had never had the, okay, so who gets called when someone dies? You know, where yeah. does this money go? How do these bills get paid? So um, thanks to the law firm, Griffin Law Firm, this great sister, um, they showed me how to make an irrevocable trust, which meant that when my aunt passed, her monies would be protected. The state couldn't take those monies. Right. And they could be given to my two cousins. Got it, got it, you know got I mean? it, and, yeah. And it was like, we, and then like having that hard conversation with my aunt about her funeral, having that conversation with my aunt about what do you wanna be buried in? These are things I never thought I'd ask somebody. Yeah. And these are the things that were happening to me in real time. And I don't think I could have handled it as well had my father not gotten sick, had I not been there and, you know, finding out, do you have a will? And okay, yeah. where's your will? And, you know, you know, so that being there six months, things started looking better. My aunt was getting mobile again. And, you know, her attitude was amazing. You know, she was, she was, she was, she was focused on beating this thing. So I come back home to Texas. I'm helping out my father and I get a call October 6th. And my aunt had gone in for another chemo treatment and they right. were like, hey, she's not re responding well, we wanna intubate her, but you're the medical power of attorney, we need her per your permission. And I said, no, nah, I need to see her. I'll put my eyes on her. And when I put my eyes on her, then we'll make a decision. So the doctor tells me, and Press, you probably experienced this as a survivor. And I'm not, I don't mean this as a negative to anybody in the health field, no. but they see life and death and they understand the mortality and the fragility of life that sometimes they're cavalier when they're explaining to you about like oh someone's gonna pass or someone's gonna die or you know what right. I mean kind of like oh today's Thursday you know what I mean to them it's it seems at least to me it felt like they didn't care you know so when I'm on the phone the doctor says to me well you can try to get here but she'll be dead by the time you get here Jeez. Jeez. so I said well then I guess she'll be dead right right I, I don't know who you are and I need to put my eyes on her. So I uh, told my parents, we talked and I called my uh, church elder and talked with him. And I just was asking him, I said, you know, I need, I need God to like show me. I don't even know what I'm walking myself into. I need right. God to help me in what I'm going into. So, you know, we prayed and when I got up there, I could see the miracles that the Lord was doing. The first thing is I talked to my aunt and she's in bad shape. I said, okay, well, what do you want to do? And she said, I don't want to die here. I don't want to die in this hospital. I said, okay. So they ended up moving my aunt to the ICU floor. She needed to be put on a high flow and a BiPAP machine, which are, which I found out later are the first two uh, respiratory or ventilator systems you're put on before yeah. you put on an ultimate ventilator. So you should have seen it press. They're, they're meeting with me. The hospital's meeting with me and, you know, there's nothing else we can do. Your aunt only has a 5% of a lung left and, you know, she's set, she's starting to stat out and they're just telling me all these horrible things that are going to happen. And so I said, well, I said, with all due respect, my aunt was diagnosed with, with the cancer return. You told her she'd be dead in two months. We're into a new year, you know, so we'll just go day by day and we'll take it as it goes. Yes. So brother, I ended up being there from the 6th. My aunt passed, I believe, I could have my dates messed up. I believe November 5th, my, my aunt passed, Damn. you know? So, and I was there with her every day, except for Halloween. I remember that day because my cousins, her kids were able to come in from school right. and come see her. But like, you know, you know how it is, Press. You have to see what God is seeing. And that's what I kept seeing. I kept seeing the outside coming in and telling me, oh, she's sick and this, that, and the third is going to happen. But all I kept seeing was a miracle. 
because yeah. my aunt, my aunt had asked God for more time. And oh my goodness, we got a day. Oh my goodness, we got a week. Oh man, we're at a month. You know what I'm saying? So I'm starting to look at it like this. And like everything that my, my aunt had asked for, she got other than the ultimate of, I, I want to see my kids grow old. You right. know what I mean? Um, she didn't want to die in the hospital. We were able to get her to pallu- palliative. I can never say it. Pa- pally- <laughs> it's okay, man. You know, hospice. There we go. The hospice. <laughs> we were able to get her to a place that was near her apartment. And yeah, my, her, her, her loved ones, everybody could come and see her. And, you know, she, she got to pass with dignity as much as possible. But it just, it just changed me, brother. It, it really did. It, man. It really, me but it, it prepared me I, I lost her a week later I came home to Texas I lost my grandmother but I got to see my grandmother before she passed right right and then about two weeks after that I lost my baby aunt you know what I'm saying but I still have my father so yeah. I've, I've seen both extremes and yeah you know it, man, it, was, a, it was a lesson no nah, I'll just say to Ron man you know um I'm not gonna lie. When I saw the pictures in the hospital, I thought you were going through it. And so, and so when, when, um, and so I'll be honest with you, I thought you were a cancer survivor. But, but, but however, though, just hearing the journey that you had as a caregiver and you just, it's amazing because like, I never knew what caregivers go through, but for your family, man, it's all or nothing. And, and I appreciate you being that caregiver. Like you probably had relationships, things of that nature, but your family was your core and you, you did what it was oh, necessary. Man, this, you, you, let, me t- let me say this so you can hear this. I want this on public record. Because of your IG posts, see, you didn't even know you were fighting. Your, I, t- I watched you on your coaches versus cancer. Yeah. You played in Houston. Yeah. Yeah, brother, I'm driving right by the stadium where you're playing to drive to the hospital to see my dad. And so I'm seeing on Instagram, you in New Jersey, I'm like, Press got cancer. Why does Press look so good with cancer? Why does Press look <laughs> cancer look like me? And by the way, I'm happy for you, but I'm like, what am I doing wrong? You know what right, I'm saying? Right, right. And um, it, wasn't, it wasn't just people like you, Bianca. She'll, she'll, this is the first time she's ever going to hear this. My aunt passes out. I go to take her to chemo. And after this, I, I, I got a, a mean question for you. Oh, no. Any, jump in any time. Okay. My aunt passed out. We rushed her via ambulance to the hospital, not Georgetown, uh, the nearest one. So the doctors, they bring me in the office. They say, okay, her blood pressure's down. They're showing me a visual uh, image of her lungs. They said, okay, she has a hemorrhage in her chest wall. So it's approximately 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning. They said, your aunt's going to be dead by 1 p.m. Yeah. So you need to go ahead and get your day in order and, you know, go ahead. She's not going to walk out this hospital. I said, okay. I said, I'm not disagreeing with you. I said, but I'm going to go, you know, take a step away. I'll go pray on this. There's two doctors. One of them is arguing, pray on it. Tells me to my face, pray on it. I'm, we're doctors. I said, I know. I said, I'm aware. I'm with you. I said, but I I need to, I need to check with my doctor and not because I don't, I just don't know which way to go. I understand. I'm praying and I go to the bathroom. I'm in the stall. I said, Lord, if, if, if this is where we're going to go, that's fine. But Lord, guide me. You know what I'm saying? Show me what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Show me, you know, who am I supposed to call first in the family tree? How is this going to work? So I, I lie to you not. The Lord's like, she's not going to die. And I'm going to show you that your situation isn't as dire as you think. So I come out the stall. I politely let the doctors know. I go, hey, she passes. We'll cover it there. But I think my, she's going to be okay. Right. So, you know, I go and I'm sitting in the room with her and Bianca Swan calls me. Wow. I'm like, hey, B, what's, and, and she doesn't know. I, you know, I haven't told anybody. I'm like, yo, B, what's up? She's like, hey, man, I'm telling you this before you see it on social media, but I got diagnosed with breast cancer. She said, mm-hmm. but I'm going to beat this to run. And so now I'm realizing, hey, man, you can't focus on what's going on. Like, what am I supposed to do? Tell her where I'm sitting? Right. So I, I sit right there with her and we have this powerful conversation, but she had unbeknownst to her, she's making me feel tough. She's making right. me feel confident, right. even though if anything, I would think I would be the one trying to provide her right. with, with support, you know? And when I would see your post or I see you with your daughter, or 
I see any of y'all because as you know, once cancer's touched you, whether it be directly or within that three or six degrees of separation, you're very sensitive to cancer. At least let me speak for myself. I'm sensitive to cancer. I donate to St. Jude. Yeah. I'm on Smile Amazon. I give my extra little money to the Cancer Society. Like you start being more intuitive in, in, in looking for people and trying to be there because you realize that this thing is affecting everybody. Yeah. And that was like, one of the greatest things, like, that's why I love your, your podcast so much. I appreciate because it. when this was happening to me in real time, I didn't know anybody I could call. I didn't know anybody I could ask. And what was the worst part is people you love so much, there was nobody I could, t- I didn't know anybody with definitely to talk to. Well, so I'm a, so we're going to wrap it up, but I would say um, we usually have our positive deposits and we ask our guests, what are, what are at least three positive deposits? You've already dropped so much knowledge. What is one thing, if you can sum it up in one thing, or maybe two things that um, you, as a positive deposit for any caregiver or someone that ends up becoming a, a, a caregiver that you would, you know, spread, you know, give to them? At least, at least one or two. The first one I, I'm gonna give to a lady who uh, is a cancer survivor like yourself. I heard her like a, I had to do like a counseling class in order to be a caregiver for my father that they made me okay. go through. And she said, as long as you live one second after you find out you're diagnosed with cancer, you're a survivor. Mm. She said, people get too caught up on the diagnosis and when I'm gonna, you've already lived, you've already beat cancer. If it wasn't Amen. gonna be cancer, it could be old age, yeah, it could be something. And that leads into the three things that I've seen. And you got to have God or faith. I'm not telling you who to pray to, but you need to have faith in something. Amen. And if you have faith in that mentality, yes. like, man, you're a warrior, brother. Like, you beat cancer twice. You're a bad man, bro. you a bad right. man. <laughs> no, hey, I'm just, hey, I, I, I'm watching it. I'm, you know what I'm saying? I, and not just you. I've seen all these other warriors. Yeah. Um, and then after your faith, you got to have, you know, like you said, a family core family, yes. friends, people who are going to go into that, that fight with you. And even as a caregiver, you'll be shocked how many people are calling and checking on you. And then the third thing, and I've heard you talk about it before, medicines, insurance, you know, yep. please go see the doctor if you don't feel please. good. Please go see the doctor every year, just in general. And please, please make sure that your insurance, whatever it is, you know, yeah. is equipped to handle this so that you don't have to go bankrupt or you know, choose between, you know, paying your mortgage or putting your kid through school. Exactly. And, 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 you know, and you know, this people are making that decision all the time, but that's what I would say, brother. Well, man, it's, it's been a pleasure, man. And um, I learned so much today, man, but it, it's a, you, you are the epitome of a caregiver, man. Like, and uh, I know this is going to touch many, many. So for those caregivers that need some tips, tools, where can we find you Teron? Where can they reach out to you? You oh, know, brother, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not on social media all the time, but I promise I answer, but I am Teron Johnson. Okay. You can see me on uh, Instagram or you can see me on Twitter right there. And I promise you, I don't have all the answers, but I'll point you to the people who do. No you doubt. No doubt. I'll be like, you need to call press. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no, you heard it. You can find him. I am Teron Johnson. Um, of course, to catch this, you come to our website www.positivedeposits.org. Um, we're on all streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and we have our YouTube channel, so definitely subscribe. And of course, without your donations, it's a tax-deductible donations, we can't do this. So um, with that, man, we're going to call it a wrap. But Tehran, I love you, man. I appreciate you, man. You, and no, you are part of this Positive Deposit family. And, and of course, we are a transformed minds to change lives. So, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, bro. Talk soon. Yes, sir.